the dark where two dusty back roads cross, a black car sits waiting. The man inside will make a deal. He has many times before, and will again. He is known in these parts as the judge. Folk go to him when they have a powerful need, a want that can't be satisfied any other way. Some are too young to know better, others are desperate, and still others are just plain stupid. His price is high, and many believe they will never have to pay it, but the bill comes due eventually. There is no escape. Once struck, the deal is all that remains. Stories from a Hard Place is an anthology podcast. Every Thursday, R.A. Jacobson presents another story from a hard place, read by the author. Listener discretion is advised. Contains strong language, violence, and some adult situations. Episode 38, Man of Flies. Monday. Phil angrily stared down at his desk. A pool of light with papers strewn about, as if the files, notes pertaining to the case he was working on, were withholding the solution. The office was empty. He was tired and frustrated. The receptionist had left at three to go to a dentist appointment. Alan had headed home hours ago, or rather, he went to his motel room. Like himself, his marriage had fallen apart. This was Alan's second walk through the ringer, and he seemed to take it better than the last time. Phil was a sizable man, slightly over six feet and heavy. He wore a button-down collared shirt uncomfortably tucked into jeans. His wife had bought his clothes for him. He had rarely noticed what he wore was never important to him. Now, of course, she was gone, and his clothes looked tired and worn. He leaned back, hands on his neck, and groaned. He had been sitting for several hours working on the case that had come in early this morning. It was a favor for a friend and a former client, so more than an acquaintance. But it was a corporate gig. They usually paid well and fairly straightforward. But, in the back of Phil's mind, he knew that a case you take on to help a friend is often the one that turns out into an erroneous nightmare. No good deed goes unpunished. This case was a two-parter. The first part was to find a man, and the second part was to find out who he was working for. Finding him should be fairly easy. The second part may be harder, but not impossible. He hadn't discussed the case with Alan as he normally would. Phil had been feeling like he had been letting things slide of late. Alan had said nothing. He never would, but deep down, Phil knew he wasn't the man he once was. He promised himself that if he ran into trouble, he would call Alan and his nose, but he would go it alone for now. He made several calls and got a few emails back bearing slivers of the puzzle that was confronting him. Finally, he sat forward, hands flat on the desk. I need a drink, he said to the empty room. He looked at the mess in front of him. He knew somewhere in all of this was an answer. Maybe not the neat answer he would like, but an answer was there. He closed his laptop, stacked his papers in loose order, and put them in a file folder. Then he stood, put the folder in the cabinet behind him, clicked his desk lamp off, stepped from the dark room and grabbed his coat and left. The building had an old elevator, the slowest thing he'd ever ridden in. It creaked and groaned, occasionally dropped several inches. He walked past it and took the stairs. It was only two floors. 
After all, it would do him good. As he walked, he thought about the case. He wished he had his partner's intuition. If he had, he might have already wrapped it up. Alan was exceptional. He seemed to feel where the answer was and how to get to it, a born detective. For all the years they worked together, Phil had always played the bumbling sidekick. He chuckled and pushed out into the night. The night air was cool and the forecast was for snow. There was a crispness in his nose. The first snow always made him feel like a bit of a kid and all the excitement it brought. A noise from above made him look up. It was a crow. He stared at it as it looked down on him. He couldn't remember seeing a crow in the city. And did they come out at night? He guessed they'd had to be somewhere. Phil watched the crow for several seconds. He became uncomfortable under the bird's gaze. With a grunt, he tore his eyes away. Dismissing the strangeness of the black shape, he walked down the street to find a bar. He did not look back. After a couple of drinks, he went back to his quiet apartment. It was as silent as he feared. He rubbed his eyes. The tiredness rolled over him. And within minutes of turning on the TV, he was asleep. His dreams were nothing new. The last few months, he had spent his nights running and being chased. Alan said it was stress, but Phil had had stress dreams before. But these felt different, more urgent, more real. He woke in his chair with the sun just coming up and the TV on. This was the third night in a row he had slept in this fucking chair. He felt like shit. He still felt exhausted, and his back was stiff. He switched the TV off and went to shower. When he finished dressing, the coffee machine had percolated. He filled his travel mug with strong black coffee and left his apartment, locking the door behind him. Outside, he caught a cab in front of his apartment building and was at his office in a few minutes. Alan and Phil had shared this office for over 20 years. Phil was the first in this morning, which was a never-before event. He smiled at what Alan would likely say about that. The small office was split in three rooms. The reception was in the middle, flanked by two offices. Phil went into his, but left the door open. He wanted to see Alan's face when he walked in and saw him sitting at his desk. Phil pulled his friend's case file and ran through some details. A few of his calls and emails from yesterday had returned some additional information, but nothing concrete. He did a few more searches based on the information he had received. He was not happy where he was with the inquiry. He was thinking he would have to bring in Alan in after all. He realized he was hungry. He checked his watch. It was after lunch, and neither Alan nor Stella, the receptionist, had come in. Phil couldn't remember Alan saying anything about being out, but he was on another case, so maybe. Phil dismissed it and went for lunch. He couldn't think of anything he wanted to eat. The scratch in time had great sandwiches, but at the moment they didn't appeal. He decided he was more tired than hungry. Maybe a nap would clear things up. A cab rolled by, and he hailed it. As he climbed in, he glanced up where the crow had been the night before, remembering the strangeness he had felt. As he sat in the cab, he congratulated himself on his good luck with cabs today. Realization crept over him, and he smiled. Of course it was easy to get a cab. And of course, Alan hadn't come in. It was Sunday. Back at his apartment, he took off his coat and stretched out on top of the bed with his shoes on. When he woke, his mouth was dry. He was surprised to see night had fallen. Fuck, he said. 
How long had he slept? It was nearly seven. How could he have slept for that long? He had to admit he felt better, but he would have a hard time falling asleep tonight. He checked his email. He had reached out yesterday to a man who worked in an insurance office and helped out with information occasionally. Phil always thought the man had far more shady sources than legit. He wasn't someone he or Alan called upon too often. His price was high, but the information was always reliable. His informant had replied. Phil had spent four hours waiting outside a small apartment building. The email he had received from his source had told him the man he was searching for would be in this apartment and would leave after seven. He was confident of the information because he was sure of the source. However, it had been hours, and he was wondering if this would be the first time his informant was wrong, or he had just been too late and had missed his quarry. He had spent the money, non-refundable of course, and he may have to pay it again. The profit on this job was shrinking. Phil cursed himself. Alan would be pissed. He decided to give it another half hour and then pack it in. He needed to warm up and have a coffee. He wondered if staying another 30 minutes was even worth it. Maybe it was time to let go. His stomach rumbled loudly and he started to think about food. That place over in 6th had great burgers and maybe he'd have a beer instead of a coffee. It wasn't late after all, what, a little after 11? Yes, that's what he was going to do. With his shoulder, he pushed off the wall and headed down the alley when the front door of the building opened. There he was, the man he was searching for. He was 5'8", or maybe 5'10", slim, and had dark hair pushed back. He had deep-set eyes, a thin face, and he looked older than the photo Phil had, maybe 30 or even 35. Under a streetlight, the man paused to light a cigarette. He turned and walked with a purposeful stride through a cloud of smoke. It swirled around him as he went down the street, with Phil following. The man seemed very intent on where he was going, as if he was late for an appointment. He didn't turn around and didn't look about at all. On this quiet street, it would be very easy to be spotted. To follow someone like this was difficult. Phil, walking along as casually as possible, he knew he should have called Alan. They could have switched off. The man hastened to the end of the street and turned right, disappearing from Phil's view. Phil hurried to the corner, then peeked around it. His quarry was already halfway down the block, walking fast, nearly running. For a minute, he thought he had been spotted, but the man never looked back, and after following him, Phil was convinced that the man was late for something. He was constantly glancing at his watch. Phil kept pace, wondering what sort of meeting at this time of night would enlist this kind of behavior. This could be it, the meeting that would wrap up the case and help him fulfill the second part of his job. He got excited. He hurried forward, more determined than ever not to lose him. Ahead, the rushing man glanced at his watch and bumped into a woman talking on her phone with a small dog on the end of a pink leash. The dog yelped and the phone flew from her hand as she toppled to the ground. And a sort of panic seemed to take him and he bolted. The woman on the ground swore at him as she picked herself up, reaching for her phone. Phil raced past her. She swore again, but didn't stop. The man slowed, then vanished. Already out of breath, Phil quickened his pace, straining to find him. He sprinted forward and saw the back alley. 
At the edge, he stopped and peered around the corner. His quarry was walking slowly down the center, scanning the lane. With a quick glance, Phil got a picture of the situation. There wasn't much cover, only one large metal garbage bin halfway between Phil and the man. Moving quietly, Phil crept along the wall toward the bin. The man seemed very engrossed in the search. Phil hoped the street noise behind him would disguise his approach. Once at the metal bin, the smell was unbelievable. Flies buzzed around Phil as he cautiously looked around the edge. The man was still walking slowly. Phil glanced at his watch. It was midnight. When he looked back, the man was beside a large, shiny black car that had driven from a cross alley. For a minute, Phil stared. There was no cross alley. It was impossible. Phil felt like he was dreaming. The unrealness of the whole scene made him question what he was seeing, made him wonder if he had fallen asleep outside the man's building and was dreaming all this. Numbly, Phil watched the black car's back door open. A tall, thin man unfolded from the back seat. He smiled the predatory smile of a used car salesman ready to make a deal. The smile broadened as they spoke, then shook hands. Beside him, a shadow formed, taking shape like a photo, slowly increasing in resolution, one dot at a time. When fully realized, a tall man, dressed all in black with a large-brimmed hat, stood smiling, holding a dark book in front of him. Phil absently waved his hand at the black flies, which were maddening. Abruptly, the man in the suit looked straight into his eyes. Phil flinched and ducked back behind the garbage bin. The flies were thick. They swirled and spiraled up, more and more of them. As Phil watched, they gathered, their hard black forms bumping and twisting. They formed a shape. Then, as more flies gathered, the silhouette solidified, and a man stood smiling down at Phil. Mr. Hammett, so nice to make your acquaintance, he said. He, too, wore a black suit and a large-brimmed hat that shaded the upper part of his face. He was smiling hugely. Phil crouched there, looking at the man who had formed out of flies. This must be a dream. Pulling his eyes away from the bizarre sight in front of him, he cautiously looked around the corner of the bin and saw all three men standing there, looking his way. Phil, how nice to see you, the tall man in the suit said, and he waved cheerfully. Mr. July, please invite Mr. Hammond to join us. Mr. Hammond, the judge extends his invitation. Please come with me. The man made of flies grasped Phil by the arm. He was intensely strong. At the touch, Phil recoiled. He swung a massive haymaker at the man's face. It did not connect. His fist flew through a swarm of bugs, and his momentum carried him forward, falling face down on the pavement. He scrambled to his feet and ran. He had only run a couple of paces when Mr. July reappeared in front of him, all buzzing with flies and grinning like this was the greatest joke in the world. Phil pulled up short. Then, without thinking, he yanked his 9mm out, aimed center mass, and fired point blank. There was a loud crack. Mr. July snapped backward. His arms were thrown wide as if to embrace the bullet. His smile never left his face. When he hit the pavement, he exploded into a swarm of black flies that filled the night air. For a second, Phil looked at the spot where a body should have lain. Then he glanced back at the alley. 
The three men were watching him, smiling. Phil frantically raced down the alley and down the street. Wednesday. In a motel room, a thin strip of blazingly bright sunlight cut a white-hot line from the curtains across the carpet, the bed, and the shins of the man who lay in the otherwise pitch-black room. The man was asleep on top of the covers, fully dressed, shoes on. His chest rose and fell shallowly. Slowly, the crisp white line slid minute by minute, hour by hour, upward towards the man's waist, then chest, finally to the man's neck, where it faded, burned orange for a brief time, and vanished, leaving the room and the man in complete darkness. The phone rang. He reached for it, knowing it was bad news. Mr. Alan Cole? The voice on the other end was crisp and professional. Yes. My name is Constable Kowalski from Division 51. Could you come down to the station and answer some questions? What's this about? We have an ongoing investigation. It involves your partner. Maybe you can clear up a few things. It's late, Alan said, for no good reason, already knowing he was going. Yes, it's rather urgent. Fine. Kay, give me half an hour. See you in half an hour. And the phone went dead. With a heavy sigh, Alan sat up, swinging his legs down. He sat for a time, breathing. Then, with another sigh and a small groan, he stood. He swayed slightly and rubbed his face with both his hands. Then he turned, grabbed his puffy, dark-blue, down-filled coat, and left the motel room. Alan Cole was an average man, of average height, with an average face. If one was asked to recall him, the description would be inevitably useless. It served him well in his work. He was an investigator, a good one. He had a feel for it. Not everyone could do what he did. He knew if he followed his gut, he'd be okay. Usually, the problem could be solved with perspective. Like so many things in life, if he could just change his and see from another's perspective, he could find the solution. Thursday. When he got to the police station, he was led down to a cell where Phil was being kept. Phil didn't look up, didn't acknowledge Alan. He hadn't responded to anyone. Alan talked to him for a while, but it was obvious something massive had happened. He was in shock and would be no help. Alan would have to find out what happened on his own. Alan had read the report. The witness had been out walking her dog and had been run over by two maniacs, in quotations. She described the first man that had knocked her down as swarthy and obviously a criminal, also in quotation marks. The second man was a big fat man out of breath and sweating. This also was in quotation marks. She further stated that she watched the men turn down an alley. After a couple minutes, she saw the large man pull out his gun and shoot a very tall man wearing a large-brimmed hat. She had seen the muzzle flash and had watched the man fall backwards. From her angle, she had not seen the body hit the ground. She then saw the man run down the street away from the alley. The witness immediately called 911 and later picked Phil out of a lineup. Phil had been found a few blocks away in a state of shock, 
huddled in a corner of a convenience store near the freezers. The cashier had thought he was being robbed when Phil came running in holding his gun. Instead, he ran straight past, curled up, and was mumbling to himself. The cashier called the police. Phil's gun was taken from his hand when he was arrested. It had been fired recently. A single round was spent. Alan had retraced Phil's steps as best he could. He had read through the case Phil had been working on. It all looked straightforward. Nothing would suspect that the night would end the way it had. Nothing was adding up. He was following his gut, but where his gut was leading didn't make sense. And with every passing hour, it made even less sense. The thing about 4 a.m. in the city is it's the same in every city. Not dead, but quiet. The streets are nearly empty except for cabs and garbage trucks. It's a time when the random odd people stand out, no longer lost in the crowd, but revealed in the lack of cover. To find yourself walking a city street at 4 a.m., some extraordinary event has either pushed you out very early or very late. Alan was out very late, and he was tired. He needed a shave and a shower to keep going. The coffee he had earlier helped a bit. Now it sat like acid in the stomach. He shoved his hands in his jeans and huddled against the light snow. He refused to own a trench coat. It was such a cliché. His dark blue downfield coat was warm, but an unfriendly bouncer at a bar two nights ago had left him with a good-sized bruise on his shoulder and a tear in his coat that disgorged small white feathers as he walked. He left a trail, like little white footprints, that blended in with the fresh snow briefly until the snowflakes melted and the feathers stood out stark against the wet pavement. Once again, he walked the alley. Not the second time, not even the third time. This is where it all had gone horribly wrong for Phil. He knew what he was looking for. He knew it had to be somewhere here, in this alley. What he searched for was small, but it possessed great weight in the mind of the world. In order to help his friend, he needed to make sense of what happened. It was here in this alley. He walked, his head down, scanning. He got to the end of the street, turned, and started back again. All at once, the night came crashing down on him. He stopped walking. He looked up at the strip of dark sky framed by brick buildings. The tiny flecks of snow came falling down. His eyelashes fluttered as snowflakes landed gently on them. Like a child, he stuck out his tongue, tasting the snow. He swayed. His eyes closed. After a minute, maybe several, he opened them and looked down. He wiped the damp from his face and rubbed his eyes. I need sleep, he thought. There, where the pavement met masonry, in a corner was what he sought all these hours. A puff of feathers floated around him as he bent and picked up the small piece of brass. He brought it up to the light and examined it closely. It was a casing from a 9mm bullet. With the casing on the end of his pencil, Alan reviewed what he knew and what he didn't. He knew Phil, his friend and partner, carried a 9mm. Phil had been arrested holding his gun. It had been fired recently. There was a witness that had seen him shoot a man. Phil had confessed to shooting a man point-blank, but he also told the man he had shot was made of flies. 
Now Phil was sitting in a cell, and from the look of it, he would be heading to a padded room. It wasn't making sense. Maybe he was in shock, or something far worse. The question now, the one Alan needed to answer, was who had been shot? Perhaps killed, and if killed, where was the body? Usually, dead men stay put and are easy to find. But it seemed this corpse didn't want to be found. Alan dropped the shell casing into a small plastic bag and put it in his breast pocket. He stood, white feathers floating about him. For the first time in a long while, Alan found himself with no clear path. His gut had failed him. He needed sleep, but he needed to find his path more. He headed back to the station to speak to Phil. Perhaps, if he had been less tired, he would have noticed the man that formed in the shadows, smiling, wearing a large-brimmed hat. Friday. Alan reached the police station. The cops were very accommodating, partly because of the relationship Alan had cultivated. Over the years, both Phil and Alan had helped them out, off the record, of course. The holding cell Phil was in was one of four in a locked room. Alan went in and heard the door behind him shut with a loud clunk. He pulled a plastic chair from the wall and placed it in front of Alan's bars. Phil, you gotta help me. I'm at a dead end. I can't make sense of any of this. Phil said nothing, just rocked back and forth, mumbling. After a time, Alan put his head in his hands. He had been sitting on a hard plastic chair for a couple hours talking, questioning, pleading with Phil, and he was getting nowhere. At one point, Phil had looked up, his eyes wide, their white showing, and screamed about a man made of flies and a black car that had driven out of a wall. Alan, taken aback, stared mouth agape. Finally, Alan stood and put the chair back against the wall where he had found it. He looked through the bars at his friend. He knew now Phil could not help him. He wasn't even sure Phil was in there anymore. I'll see you, buddy. Just hang in there. I'll find out what the hell's going on. Alan paused and looked at the cell. His friend sat on the bunk, rocking. Absently, Alan waved at a fly as he turned and pressed the buzzer on the door to be let out. He heard a sound. First, it was a buzzing, mixed with a violent scuffling sound, then a gurgled cry. Alan spun around and ran the few paces back to the cell bars. Alan couldn't make sense of what he was seeing. Phil was struggling, his feet dangling off the ground, his hands tearing at the black hands wrapped around his neck. They held him up. They held him up and were strangling him. He flailed about wildly, but to no avail. The hands were long, and the man who held Phil was very tall, very thin, and dressed all in black. He wore a large-brimmed hat, and he was smiling. As Alan watched, the man in the hat turned to look at him, and his smile widened. Never letting go of Phil, he seemed to be enjoying himself. Behind Alan, he heard the main door being unlocked, and the cop, keys rattling, came running in. Alan banged on the bars, frantic with rage. Phil's fighting slowed and became weaker until they stopped. With a final jerk, Phil hung on moving, suspended, his legs dangling like a rag doll. 
The cop was pulling out his keys, looking for the one for Phil's cell. Phil crumpled to the ground as the man in the hat disintegrated into a seething mass of flies that dropped to the floor. When the cop finally opened the cell, Phil lay dead in a pool of black flies. Saturday. Alan sat in his office with the door open, looking across to the closed door of Phil's. With no victim, and the suspect obviously mentally unstable, having committed suicide while in custody, the case had been dropped. The how he had committed suicide was not mentioned. The confession was written off as the ravings of a broken mind. The witness was deemed unreliable and mistaken. Alan was confused and angry at Phil. They had been friends for 40 years. They had gone through school, marriage, divorce, always together. It made no sense. Why hadn't he come to Alan? Why didn't he ask for help? Why had he felt he had to solve this case on his own? What Alan had seen in the holding cell felt like a dream. The counselor he had spoke to explained that what he saw was a coping mechanism to protect him from his close friend's suicide. He couldn't reconcile the image of the man of flies and what was written in the official report. Phil was gone. Those words didn't make sense to him. How could Phil be gone? He stepped out of the building. The realization settled on him that he would never see Phil again, never be annoyed by his gum chewing, never share a beer or a laugh with him. He dug in his pocket for his keys to lock up. Across the street, partially hidden in the shadows, two men stood watching him. They were very tall, dressed in black. They both wore large-brimmed hats and were smiling with teeth that nearly shone skull-like in the gloom. A cab drove past as Alan turned, locked the door, and started down the stairs. The two men were gone, but Alan, in the cab's headlights, had seen their faces for a flash. Of course it was his grieving mind, but what he had seen in that flash would haunt him for the rest of his life. Those men had no eyes under their black hats. I hope you enjoyed Man of Flies. Tune in next week for Radio SHP 666, Backroad Radio, the voice of Hard Place. Music by Noah Zachran. Production copyright by R.A. Jacobson 2021. If you would like to support Stories from a Hard Place, please go to patreon.com forward slash hard place. If you'd like a book version, either ebook or print, you can find it on Amazon. You can find links to all these and much more at Dead Cat Studio. That's deadcatstud.io. Thanks for listening. Keep the shiny side up.